Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and I'd like to welcome uh, older listeners and new listeners to uh, this uh, show where we focus on apologetics in general and presuppositional apologetics in particular. So um, a lot of what we say um, on this podcast and is a reflection of what we also have on the Revealed Apologetics YouTube channel. So, um, you know, what we have here in audio is just the audio version of a video interview or discussion or something I've done on YouTube. However, um, this particular um, episode is not available on YouTube. And so if you are a fan of the podcast, then you are getting this first. Okay. Um, So um, I'm going to be covering a couple of things here. First, but uh, first, though, it is currently... Um, January 22nd, a new video has just been dropped on the Revealed Apologetics YouTube channel, uh, so you might want to go over there and check that out. Um, it does presuppose, no pun intended, uh, it does presuppose some background knowledge of presuppositionalism, but um, I just released a video in which I respond to common objections to the presuppositional methodology, um, so you might want to check that out. Um, But what's the plan for today? Well, here's a couple of things. Um, I want to go through a series of questions that I've received with respect to how does presuppositional apologetics work, okay? Um, This uh, was also the product of an interview that I was on on someone else's YouTube channel, which was a while back, so I don't remember uh, the name of the interview uh, and what channel uh, it was on, so I can't refer you to, uh, to that resource. Um, But I'm going to be engaging the question, how does presuppositionalism work, and go through some of the questions that I was asked then, and uh, share my thoughts here on this podcast. Then I want to go through a list of questions that I received from someone who follows the YouTube channel, follows the podcast. His name is Fred that's all the information I can give you. Um, I do not know Fred personally, but he asked a list of questions that I thought were uh, good and, and will be, prove useful um, for folks here as they listen in. All right. Well, without further ado, let's engage the question, how does presuppositional apologetics work? So the first question here was uh, briefly explain the core commitments of the presuppositional method. Are there any variations of the method that have developed among Vantillians? And what do you regard as Vantill's most faithful interpreter? Um, okay, so a couple of things. If you are completely new to presuppositional apologetics, then you might, you may not, or perhaps you've heard, but you may not know much about Cornelius Van Til. Now, Cornelius Van Til uh, was a Christian philosopher and apologist, um, and he is considered the father of presuppositionalism. So I'm not going to go through a historical analysis and biography of who Van Til was, uh, but you can check out um, who Van Til is on the, uh, the internet, or um, you can look up Cornelius Van Til on Amazon and pick up uh, some of his books. All right. So, um, okay. So presuppositionalism, uh, just basically a kind of a basic understanding, tries to bring all human thinking into subjection to the authority of the Word of God. That's basically the gist of presuppositionalism. And so uh, with regards to um, methodological application, uh, presuppositionalism as a method, uh, it seeks to demonstrate that if one does not subject one's thinking and reasoning to the authority of God, uh, then such reasoning grounded upon some other foundation will basically reduce one's reasoning to absurdity, okay? Um, Because we argue that God, the God of Scripture, is the foundation of everything, and he um, he and his revelation give meaning to everything that we do, even our reasoning process. Uh, Van Til once said, quote, 
Uh, I have learned something of what it means to make every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, being converted anew every day to the realization that I understand no fact aright unless I see it in its proper relation to Christ as creator, redeemer of me and my world. That is from My Credo, Van Til, page 5. So he saw everything in light of God's revelation. And so we need to um, argue uh, apologetically in a way that's consistent with that and call the unbeliever to consistency with respect to their own worldview so as to show the, um, the reality of contradictions and inconsistencies within that perspective while showing the strength and coherency and truth of the Christian one. Now, with regards to variations within presuppositional thought, um, I'd say, yeah, right? There are a variety of presuppositional approaches that uh, while um, they typically follow the same pattern of thought, um, they perhaps have a different emphasis. So for example, um, a famous presuppositionalist, uh, Greg Bonson, listeners to my show will know who uh, Dr. Bonson was. Um, I would call Greg Bonson, uh, Scott Oliphant, who's over there at Westminster Theological Seminary. I would call them presuppositional apologists. Um, however, Bonson typically focused in areas of his own expertise, which was um, that of epistemology. Okay, While Oliphant, on the other hand, sought more to intentionally, I think, uh, to set the presuppositional methodology within the context of covenant and reform theology. Okay, so he tried to couch uh, presuppositionalism within kind of biblical reform theological categories. Now, if you compare someone like Bonson and John Frame, uh, again, both are presuppositionalists, but with some variation. So I would say Bonson is more in line with Van Til's thinking, while Frame tends to be a little bit more critical of uh, Van Til. And Frame sees, unlike Bonson, uh, Frame sees more value uh, in the usefulness of the more traditional arguments for God's existence. So he'd be more open, uh, John Frame would be more open to say the theistic proofs, you know, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the moral argument, things like, uh, things like that. All right, so I hope that uh, that answer is clear. A uh, second question uh, that I was asked was this, uh, what makes the presuppositional method uniquely reformed? Why couldn't an Arminian or a Catholic use this method? And does TAG, the transcendental argument uh, for God, assume reformed theology? Now this is a really important question and obviously as you would imagine it is debated as you have people using a presuppositional methodology uh, who come from different you know, theological perspectives, and even, you know, you'll have some Eastern Orthodox folks use presuppositionalism, and of course, some Catholics, okay? So there's, that's definitely um, something that happens, okay? Uh, well, yes, I, I think the necessary connection or lack thereof between a presuppositional approach and reform theology, as I said, is a debated, a debated topic among people. However, me personally, um, I'm of the position that it seems to me that the presuppositional approach is simply a consistent application of Reformed theology to the specific area of unbelief, which is apologetics. And this was undoubtedly Cornelius Van Til's position, uh, indeed the development of his apologetic. Uh, he says explicitly in his writings that what he is uh, seeking to do is to have an apologetic that is, co that is a consistent outflow of his reformed position. The connection, I think, is wrapped up um, in a fully robust notion of a completely sovereign God who decrees all that comes to pass, um, such that everything that exists has its meaning and purpose given its creation and placement within God's sovereign decree. 
Um, it seems to me that a presuppositional methodology will view man as God's image bearer and as such has an innate, immediate knowledge of his maker given the very nature of man's constitution. Okay? Um, so, uh, you know, Van Til would hold to kind of Calvin's sensus divinitatis that there is an immediate awareness and knowledge of, of God that is in the believer being suppressed. Okay, so these are various elements uh, of kind of Reformed theology, of course, with some variation. Uh, a consistent presuppositional approach will take into consideration the nature of man after the fall as he is affected and touched by sin and all that he is, um, such that the natural man is not neutral towards God, right? But he has an axe to grind against him, right? There's that issue of total depravity and the noetic effects of sin, the effects of sin upon the mind of man. Uh, furthermore, because Reformed theology affirms that all men know that God exists and are without excuse, they're unapologetus, as Romans chapter 1 says, to, to be literally without an apologetic, um, he doesn't present Christianity, Van Til, and the presuppositionalist in a way that conflicts with that theological reality, right? So I think there are some essential connections between Reformed theology as a broader perspective and its more specific application with respect to defending the faith. All right. Um, transcendental arguments. Uh, can Arminians and Catholics use transcendental arguments? Well, first, we need to make a distinction between transcendental arguments in general and the transcendental argument in particular, which is more characteristic of the, the more presuppositional utilization of transcendental arguments. Now, nothing can really prevent people from using transcendental arguments in general, right? Uh, folks do this all the time. Uh, but when we are speaking of the transcendental argument in particular, there's a difference in that the nature of the transcendental argument, as the presuppositionalist uses it, is more all-encompassing than your run-of-the-mill transcendental argument. Okay, the reason why I think issue, uh, you know, issues come up when folks without a reformed understanding of these things try to utilize a presuppositional approach, is that Arminian and Catholic theology seem to make room for neutrality and autonomy with regards to the ability of human reasoning. So I think there's an inconsistency there. Um, so I would, I would point that out um, as that kind of comes forth in a discussion with someone who is not reformed and holds to a presuppositional approach. Now, if someone allows for neutrality and autonomy as a viable way of understanding knowledge acquisition and human reasoning, then there is in that an implicit admission that some facts are intelligible without reference to God as being the back of them. But if some facts are intelligible without reference to the God who defines all facts, then how can we turn around and argue that it is only the Christian worldview that provides the necessary preconditions for intelligibility, facts, knowledge? There would be an inconsistency at that point with regards to the apologetic application. So those are some of the points that I would bring up in response to that question. Uh, here's another question. Uh, to what extent was Van Til an idealist? And did this affect his, uh, his apologetic method? Is it okay to incorporate any notions from secular thought into our apologetic method? Now, my response here would be that I, that I don't think Van Til was an idealist at all. And again, if you don't have uh, background in, in philosophy and things like that, um, then uh, th what I'm about to say you, you m might not make sense to you. So you might want to go and you know, look up a definition there. Uh, I don't want to kind of get too sidetracked here. But I don't think Van Til was an idealist at all. Okay, this is a common accusation that Van Til has addressed ad nauseum in his own work, and others have all uh, obviously come to his defense in this regard as well. 
I think it's because uh, Van Til, in dealing with, during his period, when he was flourishing, right, in dealing with idealist philosophy, he adopted idealistic philosophical vocabulary that many accuse him of adopting idealist categories. But Van Til, really, he, he really repudiated those, those accusations. With regard to the latter part of, of the question, all facts are God's facts. All truth is God's truth. So to the extent that the unbeliever makes any legitimate contributions to the edifice of human knowledge, it will be in virtue of borrowing the Christian worldview. It has never been Van Til's position that unbelievers have never contributed in any meaningful way to the edifice of human thought, right? They have, and, and, and they have done so while sitting on God's lap so as to reach his face and slap him. This is what Van Til often brought up to show that the unbeliever actually had to rely on God even to argue for God. So if there's any notion that is valid within unbelieving thought, its validity and intelligibility is not in virtue of the coherence and plausibility of the unbeliever's worldview context. Rather, in virtue of the fact that said unbeliever is an image bearer of God who lives in God's world and enjoys the intellectual benefits of being made after the likeness of his maker. Okay, so this is the suppression of the truth that the unbeliever knows. Now, unbelievers can, you know, I'm not saying that there's nothing good that an unbeliever says. There are unbelievers who are brilliant, intellectually speaking, right? Um, and, and in as much as what they say reflects reality, yeah, we can incorporate those, but we do not incorporate the unbeliever's foundation. They, we do not adopt the unbeliever's worldview context out of which they understand that specific intellectual contribution, right? We always want to contextualize things within a consistent worldview framework, okay? All right, next question. Uh, do arguments for Christianity have to prove Christianity as a whole? Do these arguments have to be certain proofs of God's existence rather than probable proofs? And my response to that is, um, you know, not necessarily. One could utilize arguments that um, that confirms some specific item of the Christian worldview. For instance, I could appeal to a historical case that confirms the resurrection of Jesus. However, the issue is that when one appeals to historical analysis, uh, philosophical argumentation, and evidence, the Christian, who is committed to his scriptural foundation, does not do so in a way that forsakes the necessity of that foundation in favor of a neutral and autonomous approach. That's to say that probabilistic arguments be they historical or philosophical in nature, will always be governed by the framework of the Christian worldview for their intelligibility and meaningfulness. And these probabilistic arguments are simply confirmatory of those specific items of the Christian worldview, but they are never utilized in a fashion that suggests that historical analysis, philosophical argumentation, and so forth are meaningful apart from the Christian framework based upon God's sure revelation. Now, while such arguments uh, are useful, the probabilistic arguments, uh, within the apologetic interaction between the believer and unbeliever, they are never sufficient in and of themselves, since probabilistic arguments always leave wiggle room for the unbeliever to reject the claims of Christ. Ultimately, a presuppositional approach, a transcendental approach, leaves the unbeliever with only two options. And I think these are the sorts of options that should be the only options when considering what the Bible has to say on, on, on these matters. And those options are bowing the knee to Jesus or being reduced to absurdity. Okay? All right. Uh, our next question. Uh, in what sense is the presuppositional method circular reasoning? And can arguments and evidence be used to challenge one's presuppositions? Okay? I think that's a good question. Um, of course, we want to make an important distinction between circular reasoning 
and circular argument. Circular argument is an argument in which the conclusion of the argument is assumed in one or more of the premises. Uh, premises. And the presuppositional methodology doesn't engage in that sort of circularity. So when the presuppositionalists are accused of circular uh, circularity, they don't like shudder and say, oh my goodness, I, I didn't figure that out. You know, uh, We recognize that when one gets to the foundation of one's worldview perspective, the very nature of the case is that the foundation will have a sort of circularity to it, especially as in the case of the Christian worldview, that very foundation is the basis upon which everything else within our worldview is meaningful, intelligible, and cogent. So one's worldview foundation or bedrock is self-attesting and is not demonstrable by appealing to something external and more foundational than it. For if that was the case, then one's ultimate foundation would not be you guessed it, it wouldn't be ultimate. When the skeptic asks, therefore, to demonstrate the truth of that foundation, the presuppositionalist is happy to do so, but not in some independent, neutral, and autonomous fashion. The Christian foundation, which is itself the very foundation for all meaning and intelligible experience, is not demonstrated by a method that does not itself rely upon that necessary foundation. To try to do that would literally be self-refuting to the presuppositionalist uh, perspective. Okay. Can we use evidence and arguments to challenge our presuppositions? Well, here's a quote from Greg Bonson. Quote, um, and this is from Van Til's Apologetic. Uh, because a person's presuppositions determine his conception of science, rationality, evidence, etc., one does not ordinarily appeal to scientific procedures, abstract reasoning, or experimental verification in order to prove one's presuppositions. The notion of proof itself takes its meaning from those presuppositions. And Van Til goes on to say, the reformed method of apologetics would presuppose God before seeking to prove that Christianity is in accord with reason and in accord with fact. It would ask that is, uh, it would ask that is meant by reason and what is meant by fact. It would argue that unless reason and fact are themselves interpreted in terms of God, they are unintelligible. Reason and fact cannot be brought into fruitful union with one another except upon the presupposition and existence of God and his control over the universe. All right? Well, I hope these questions are helpful and are clarifying. Uh, now I want to shift um, to the questions that were asked by um, a listener to the show, um, Fred. Okay, he asked some really good questions, and so um, hopefully these questions will also provide a, a context for those listening uh, as to better understand where presuppositionalism is coming from. All right, so Fred asks his first question. This is number one. In Romans 1, Paul seems to be using evidential arguments for the existence of God. Would you explain what Paul is doing here? Okay, that's a good question. Uh, Romans 1 um, he talks about the knowledge of God and, and God uh, is known through what is made, right? Romans 1, 18 and on. So with respect to Romans 1, um, I don't see Paul using evidential apologetic methodology here. I think it's important to note pardon, uh, that appeals to evidence for God's existence all around us and within us is not the same as using evidentialism as a methodology, okay? The presuppositionalist may appeal to evidence in creation without committing herself or himself to evidentialism as a methodology. Evidentialism 
presupposes that man's reasoning capacities in some respect is autonomous with respect to the intelligibility of, of the facts of human experience uh, and to some degree uh, can be approached with a level of neutrality, a sort of no one knows as of yet sort of mentality. For the presuppositionalist, um, autonomous reasoning and neutrality with respect to how we um, confront the facts of human experience, we think is impossible. Man, as a, uh, a, a derivative creature, is at no point autonomous unto himself, but is continually and necessarily relying upon God at every point of the reasoning process. It is the presuppositional apologist who seeks to expose this reliance in the midst of the unbeliever's verbal denial of the fact. And I think furthermore, the evidential apologist uh, seeks to argue in such a fashion as to arrive at the conclusion based upon the reasonable consideration of the evidence and that God most probably exists. However, um, the presuppositional apologist doesn't argue in this fashion, right? Uh, in fact, it is no part of the presuppositionalist case to demonstrate the existence of a God whose existence is more probable than not, right? These aren't the categories that presuppositionalists are operating under. Rather, we argue for a God whose existence is known by all men, such that they are without excuse. And while there is nothing wrong in principle with uh, probabilistic argumentation, our case for the Christian worldview is stronger in that what we believe, uh, in that we believe it can be argued to be the necessary foundation and precondition for any intelligible experience whatsoever. So, so that said, I'm not asserting that Romans 1 is necessarily teaching presuppositionalism. I'm not saying that. I, I do not think like, you know, an apologetic method is in view here in Romans 1. However, what Paul says in Romans 1 is, I think, very consistent with the overall presuppositional thrust, especially when we marshal the broader biblical perspective as it bears upon uh, the apologetic methodological question. So I think it's it's important to note, uh, for example, that Romans 1 is not presenting to us a token example of, say, natural theology, which is the activity of man reasoning up to God based upon the natural order, but of natural revelation. I think that's what Romans 1 is telling us. And revelation, natural revelation, is the activity of God providing for his creatures his own self-disclosure and man's inexcusability for rejecting that revelation. Okay, so I hope that question, uh, the answer to that question makes sense. Number two, Fred asks, why is Allah being a monad, unable to have the attribute of love from eternity? So real quick, to provide a context for um, Allah in Islam, Allah is a Unitarian God, right? God is one being who exists as three persons. This is different than Trinitarian theology of Christianity in, in terms of which God is a being who exists as three co-eternal Pardon, persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So why is Allah being a monad, um, being kind of a, a Unitarian sort of God, unable to have the attribute of love from eternity? Um, and I think the answer to that is, is simple. Love is relational. But because Allah is a monad, right, uh, prior to creating, he did not stand in any relational context with anyone. And hence love, which is relational, is not essential to his being. So love relationship for Allah can only exist if he creates others to stand in such a relationship with, right? The triune God of Scripture is the very essence of love as his triune nature reflects the fact that the persons of the Godhead have, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in an eternal relationship prior to creation, right? From all eternity. Again, that's not to say that Allah cannot have the attribute of love, but the attribute of love is, is contingent upon creating creatures to stand in such a relationship, all right? All right, Fred asks a, a question on the 
problem of the one and the many, which is again uh, an important philosophical concept, which um, I'm not going to unpack. Well, I mean, I'll unpack it a little bit. Um, let me just let me just give you my answer. Okay, so what is the problem of the one and the many, and why is the Trinity the solution? That's the question. What is the problem of the one and the many? This is a philosophical um, issue throughout the history of philosophy, um, and why is the Trinity a, a, a solution to this problem? The problem of the one and the many is a, a noted philosophical problem throughout the history of philosophy, it's centered around the really the perennial question of whether ultimate reality is a unity or plurality is what is what is metaphysically a primary an ultimate one or an ultimate many if what is metaphysically ultimate is a fundamental oneness then we ask then when from whence does plurality derive if what is metaphysically ultimate if that foundation is a plurality then what unifies the distinct particulars of this fundamental reality? Without an underlining unity, then the many or that which is a fundamental plurality would have no intelligibility as there would be no unifying oneness that relates them in a meaningful way. So to give a tangible example of oneness and manyness categories, let's consider the idea of a duck on a pond, okay? And this is kind of a common example here. So, so what is a duck, right? Necessary to, to define a duck requires both oneness and manyness categories. In essence, in order to meaningfully understand what a duck is, you need to both uh, you need both the particular duck or ducks, right? The many and the abstract nature of the duck or duckness, right? The one. If duckness did not exist, then would it be possible to identify a particular instance of what we call a duck, right? You need both the particular instance of the duck along with the universal unifier, duckness, all right? Now, oneness and manyness categories are inescapable, as even language itself presupposes these categories. But what accounts for these categories? What metaphysical framework provides a coherent foundational context out of which these oneness and manyness categories derive? It can't be reasonably uh, an ultimate one. I don't think that's a reasonable position to hold. Um, that is more primary than the many, nor can it be an ultimate many with no universal unifier out of which the many particulars are intelligible. Rather, whatever the metaphysical context is that, that I think coherently grounds these one and many categories, um, which are necessary for intelligible experience, I would say that they must be, whatever that foundation is, it must be equally one and many. And the Christian doctrine of the Trinity posits that God is, ontologically speaking, a unity and a plurality. God is one being, the ultimate one, and three persons, the ultimate many. In the Trinity, oneness is not derived from the many, nor is the many derived from the one. Both the one and many are equally ultimate. And because God is absolute and triune in his nature, the triune God provides a coherent metaphysical context out of which the oneness and manyness categories in creation are derived. Okay? All right. Number four, why is asking the believer or the unbeliever, how do you know? A good question, right? And this is what presuppositionalists can uh, have been, you know, been called, you know, we're guilty of this. We ask, well, how do you know? Well, how do you know? Well, how do you know? And it really doesn't get us anywhere. And so um, I think the how do you know question is, is really important, okay? Asking the unbeliever, um, how do you know, is important because if the unbeliever thinks that God is not required for one to have knowledge, uh, we want the unbeliever to make good on that claim. Uh, you don't need God in his revelation to have knowledge, Mr. Unbeliever? Fine. Ground knowledge without him. 
At this point, we ask the unbeliever to show us what he knows and how he knows it without God. Now, of course, he can't ground such knowledge without God, and so that's why we ask him to account for the very claims he so easily takes for granted. And so asking the question, how do you know, is not being used here as kind of like a rhetorical tactic, but rather to challenge the unbeliever to justify her knowledge claims without recourse to God, whom we are arguing, right, as the presuppositionalists were arguing, provides the necessary preconditions for knowledge itself. So the question, how do you know, is asked so that the unbeliever does not get to simply take certain claims for granted. The unbeliever, no doubt, will will balk at this. You know, they'll they'll say, oh, you know, that the God isn't necessarily required to ground knowledge and intelligibility. That's silly, right? But but balking at it and ridiculing it, um, you know, uh, it's not an argument against uh, the point we're trying to make. And so we expect the unbeliever to object to this line of reasoning, of course. But that's why we're having the dispute in the first place, right? So be careful not to use the "how do you know" question in a disingenuous fashion. We do not ask the question simply to trip up the unbeliever or anything like that or to make the, we want to make the unbeliever aware of his or her presuppositions and foundations as well as to make the unbeliever aware that in such a foundational debate nothing is to simply be taken for granted okay now of course each of these questions that i just addressed warrant deeper and more you know profound uh, analysis but i think for now um i think this is enough to kind of give uh, you know some food for thought and hopefully you understand presuppositionalism a little better. Again, um, these questions and the, the points that I've made kind of assumes uh, some background knowledge in these issues. So if this is your first episode you're listening to, and I do apologize, uh, but there you go. All right, well, that's it for this episode. If you are enjoying uh, the content, please write a positive review on iTunes. That would be greatly appreciated and is super helpful. And also, as of the recording and um, posting of this um, episode. Um, the My online apologetics class entitled Presup You, an introduction to biblical apologetics, is actually um, going to be, uh, you, folks can sign up for it. Um, and uh, you can do that at uh, revealedapologetics.com and uh, press the Presup You drop down menu and you could sign up for the class. And doing that, it is a five week um, online class, uh, premium students. Uh, those who, who order the premium version um, will be meeting with me once a week uh, for a private Zoom session so we can go deeper into the content. Um, and that's going to start on Monday, January 24th. So right now, as I'm recording this, it's January 22nd. So as soon as you listen to this, I'm going to be um, uh, posting this in just a few minutes after I close up here. Uh, you can go over to revealedapologetics.com and sign up for my presuppositional apologetics online course entitled Precep You. That, I think it's going to be helpful for you as well as um, in signing up for it, you are also supporting the ministry and I greatly appreciate it as well. All right, well, that's it for this episode of Revealed Apologetics. I hope this has been helpful. Until next time, take care. God bless. Bye-bye.